So we're going to be reading uh, the story of the wise men, the magi, the visitors from the east. But we're not going to start where you might think we would. We're going to start at verse 9. So here we start. Uh, After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, that's the Magi, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. I want to start off just with a quick story. A few weeks ago, I was talking uh, with our lead pastor, uh, Eric, and with my fellow intern, Jolene, and we were talking about preaching. And we were doing some planning for the future, for some upcoming uh, sermon series and some one-offs, and uh, so we were talking about the future. And uh, Eric had asked Jolene if she could share a little bit about an upcoming sermon that she had in the new year. And even though Jolene had picked out a text and she knew what it generally said, she gave a response that was basically like, no, I don't think I can because I have no idea where the text is going to take me. 
And to her credit, that's a really, really helpful way to describe what I went through preparing for this morning's sermon. For Advent, I decided to take on the topic of the wise men. And a little while after I took that topic up, then Eric followed up with me and he said, Hey, you got any thoughts on the wise men yet? I'd love to hear how it's going. And I said, I don't have anything yet. But I think probably I'm going to talk about the significance of the gifts of the wise men. That's very interesting and intriguing to me. And so going into studying Matthew 2, that was kind of the goal I had. And the more that I studied the passage, I came to realize that's not what the story is really about. So I want to start off with a handful of questions this morning so we can kind of get our footing for what's going on in the story. And then we'll draw some conclusions. First, what is Matthew up to? Let's start by looking at the writer of the story, Matthew. Matthew is a Jewish tax collector. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And Matthew is writing his gospel to, specifically to Jewish Christians. And he's trying to show them that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, and he continuously references the Old Testament to try to prove that. In the text that we read this morning, we had two Old Testament quotes, and even in the rest of the chapter, the few verses that we didn't read, there are two more quotes. That's just in one chapter. So every story that we read in the Gospel of Matthew, we sort of have to keep this theme in mind that Matthew's trying to tell us. Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And so Matthew begins his gospel in chapter 1 with a very exciting genealogy. And chapter 1, verse 1, has this very succinct phrase that describes the whole thing. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham kind of summarizes the whole thing. So Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1 sets Jesus up as the king of the Jews from the line of David who was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, who the Magi are looking for. They are looking for the king of the Jews. But who are the Magi? Who are these, these guys from the east? Are they, are they magi or are they wise men or are they kings? Well, we don't know a whole lot about them. And unfortunately, in modern Western culture, their identity has been somewhat falsely solidified by the hymn, We Three Kings. It's written in the 1800s. However, they're almost certainly not kings, and there's an unknown number of them. They're not three, and they're not kings. You'll notice in the story here, Matthew never says how many there are. He just says that there are three gifts. So we think three gifts, three of them. But we don't know. And I love that hymn, We Three Kings, one of my favorites. Unfortunately, it's just not 
very accurate. So when it comes to Jewish people, on the other hand, when they read this story written by Matthew and the Magi come on the scene, there would be a handful of red flags that go up about these guys. Magi are ancient astrologers, not astronomers. Think horoscopes, not NASA. So they believe that the gods communicated to them through the patterns of the stars, which themselves were also divine beings. The stars were divine beings. And in foreign nations, kings would often pay magi large amounts of money to get wisdom from them and, and information and advice on things like, like dreams and wars and what to do with their crops. And these magi would get their information, their wisdom from studying the patterns of the stars for what the gods had to say. So as a Jewish reader, when the Magi show up on the scene, all the warning and alarm systems go off. Ah! Pagan sorcerers! What are they doing in this story about the Messiah? Well, they're studying and they're following a star, like they normally do. And as the Magi follow this star, they end up in Jerusalem, which makes sense. If you're going to be looking for a king, you should probably go to the capital city. And while they're in Jerusalem, they meet King Herod. Well, who's King Herod? This is Herod the Great. And when you study some of the history of Herod the Great, you come to discover that Herod was, to put it lightly, insane. He was very paranoid about his throne, and he often suspected even the people closest to him of treason. He never trusted anyone. Herod murdered his wife, three of his sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, just to name a few, not to mention all of the baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two in verse 16. And there are a few reasons particularly that an interaction with magi from the east who are looking for a king of the Jews would especially frighten Herod, who's already paranoid. First off, Herod never had any reason to fear the west. That's where Rome lies, the capital city of the empire whom he serves. But on the east where the enemies lie. We know that, that Herod developed over time this deep-seated fear of attacks from the east, and he built up Jerusalem's east walls. And so we have these magi showing up from the east, 
And they're talking about a new Jewish king. So secondly, Herod knows he is not the rightful heir of the Jewish throne. He has stolen the throne by aligning himself with Rome. So revolt from the Jewish people is possible at any point, and it happened lots of times before the birth of Jesus during Roman occupation. Revolt is possible if only the right person would arise. And so this new king of the Jews is not the kind of person Herod is going to want to keep around. So now we understand some of the danger that the Magi and Jesus were in when it came to Herod the Great. Regardless, the Magi do locate Jesus in Bethlehem, and they worship him with their gifts. But why these gifts? What's so special about gold and frankincense and myrrh? There is a few layers here. For starters, these would be the kind of gifts that were commonly given to kings. There's nothing out of the ordinary that way. They were expensive. They were sweet-smelling. However, if you want to read into the story a little bit, you might infer that these gifts have a deeper spiritual meaning behind them. Gold represents Jesus' kingship over all creation. Frankincense, think like the burning of incense, represents Jesus' godship. And myrrh, which was commonly used for the embalming of corpses, represents Jesus' death. And so these gifts seem to point to this baby Jesus being the king God who would die. But it does seem a bit doubtful that the Magi would actually knowingly be worshiping Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. I mean, many of Jesus' own disciples who spent years with him didn't understand him as the Son of God for quite some time. The Magi rightly identified Jesus as the Davidic king promised in the Old Testament, the king of the Jews, that's who they're looking for. But I think little did they know the significance and the imagery of the gifts that they brought. It seems that their worship was more than they themselves could even really understand. It's almost like they could have walked away from that scene going, that was amazing. And I think that there's more to this baby Jesus than meets the eye. And the gifts being so expensive would also serve another purpose. These pagan sorcerers show up, and they essentially dump a mountain of cash on Mary and Joseph with these gifts, which could later be used to fund their escape 
to Egypt. More on that a little bit later. Let's start now with why they have to flee in the first place. The story takes a dark turn here. The worshipful reaction of the Magi contrasts the murderous reaction of King Herod. The Magi in a dream are directed to go back to their homeland in a different way that avoids Herod. Remember, Herod fears the east and he's no stranger to murder. It seems that Herod's plan is to wait to hear back from the Magi about where this king of the Jews is exactly located, then to kill the Magi, and then to find and kill Jesus so that his throne would be safe once again. When Herod realizes the Magi are not coming back, he does something terrible. He orders the mass murder of every baby boy in Bethlehem. Being a recent father, that hits home. By this time, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are already in Egypt. But even the sparing of Jesus' life doesn't take away from the tragedy. Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31, verse 15. A voice is heard in Ramah. Mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. If you remember who Rachel is, she's the beloved wife of Jacob, Israel. So Rachel is quite literally the mother of the children of Israel. Matthew's quoting Jeremiah here to show us that the mourning and the great weeping that's experienced, it's as if Rachel herself were weeping for her children. And in order to to prevent this same fate, For baby Jesus, an angel appears to Joseph to tell him, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Because of the threat on Jesus' life, the family is, in a sense, exiled from the land of Israel. So here's another reason that Matthew quotes Jeremiah here, because like the Israelites in the time of Jeremiah, Jesus is experiencing an exile 
They're forced to flee unexpectedly. Joseph is just a carpenter, probably scraping jobs here and there together. How can he afford to have his family living in exile? They have no family in Egypt to stay with. How is he going to afford to buy food for them? Well, pagan sorcerers did just dump a bunch of cash on them. Because of the Magi, Mary and Joseph are now all of a sudden kind of rich. And so they would be able to use these immensely valuable gifts to fund their escape and stay in Egypt for a while in exile. And it's significant that they escaped to Egypt. Remember, Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. They enter Egypt in search of safety, like Jacob, Israel, and his family. And then eventually they are called out of Egypt, like Moses. And so we see here a second exodus from the land of Egypt. And here Matthew quotes Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt... I called my son. And this is a direct reference to the first exodus. When Hosea originally wrote this, it was not a prediction of the future, but it was a reflection on the past of what God had done. So Matthew wants the quote to be understood in its original context as Hosea wrote it. Hosea is giving a commentary on the first exodus and the things that God had done for the Israelites in the past. But now Matthew is using it for a second exodus. So what exactly is Matthew trying to say by showing us that there's a second exodus? What does that even mean? I mean, the first exodus didn't really amount to much in the long term. The Israelites were still disobedient. God still punished them for their disobedience. And it got so bad between them that eventually the kingdom is torn in two and all of the people are sent off. The land is taken from there. They're sent into exile. The first exodus is a failure on Israel's part, on the part of humanity. But now, in Matthew, through the birth of Jesus, God himself is coming down as a human to uphold Israel's part of the covenant for them. In the Old Testament, God makes multiple covenants with the Israelites. His promise to them is essentially, if you keep my commandments... If you love, serve, and obey me, then I will be your God, and I will make you a great nation, and I will establish my kingdom through you, and through you I will bless all the nations of the world. But the Israelites fail, time and time again, throughout the Old Testament. 
But through the birth of Jesus, God has come down in the form of human to fulfill the role that God had originally given to the Israelites. Jesus would establish God's kingdom here on earth. He would open the blessing up to all the nations, even the Magi. He would perfectly keep God's law without one single failure. Here as we read about Jesus' own exodus from Egypt, we see him taking up the role as the true Israel. And in our passage, the nation of Israel is hurting. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And Matthew cuts off his Jeremiah quote there, but I want to read the next two verses for you, part of which are up on the screen. This is Jeremiah 31, 16 and 17. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. And as Mary, Joseph, and Jesus return to their own land, they fulfill this prophecy of hope. Jesus fulfills the prophecy of hope for the nation. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for the Messiah has come. He has experienced his own exile and his own exodus from Egypt and the slaughtering of his own people in an attempt to slaughter him. All just in these few verses. Jesus experiences in a short time essentially the entire history of the Israelites in the Old Testament. And he is the promised Messiah. He is the hope for the nation. But he's not just the hope for the nation of Israel. None of the normal ways that God works are present here. There's no prophets. There's no Israelite kings. There's no religious leaders. Here we have pagan sorcerers and an insane king. Pagan sorcerers are doing what they usually do. Trying to listen to the gods by following and studying the stars. And as Tim Mackey from the Bible Project puts it, the Magi happened to turn into the radio line from the God of Israel. And it's interesting that he would accommodate that and reveal himself to them in that way. God graciously uses their 
ordinary way of trying to listen to show them something extraordinary that he is doing. God isn't bound to the ways that we think are normal and acceptable for him to work. He will work however he pleases. And the gifts that the Magi bring do point ahead to the things that Jesus would eventually do and be later on in his life. But in the immediacy here of the story, they are required to fund the exile to Egypt and the exodus back to the promised land of Israel as Jesus embodies his role as the true Israel. The role that God had commanded Israel in the Old Testament is finally being accomplished. And the nations of the whole world are going to be blessed by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. In this story, even as a toddler, Jesus is fulfilling his role as the true Israel, the true chosen one from God. People from other nations and tribes and tongues have come to worship him. The Magi have come. The Son of God is the fulfilled Israel, but he's not just the hope of Israel, he's the hope of nations. He's the hope of the whole world. And he is the only hope for you and for me. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. We know that you will never fail to keep your promises. And Jesus, we thank you for upholding our end of the deal. You bring hope to everyone. You are our hope. And we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate your arrival. And we're excited about the things that you're still doing today. And we anticipate the things that you're going to do tomorrow. Amen.